Yes, our New Testament reading today is taken from Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ruth. Well, in just a little while, we're going to have a congregational meeting. But first, I wanted to examine the lesson uh, from the book of Haggai. Haggai is a tiny little book in the Old Testament. Not the smallest book, but it is a very small book in the Old Testament. It's only two chapters. And I believe God has given me a word this morning from the book of Haggai for us. Um, the message of Haggai is profound. Let's pray first. Father, touch us now in the Holy Spirit and open our hearts to hear you, to recognize that the word of God is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And this morning as we hear a word of reproof, correction, and training, let us not be offended, but rather, oh God, let us be motivated to action and recognize that, um, Lord, you call us as your people to join you in the work of building your kingdom. We pray now these things in Christ's name, amen. Just a little bit of background. Um, at the end of the Babylonian captivity, the people of God were slowly starting their way, started, slowly starting to make their way back to Jerusalem. The book of Ezra talks about this, talks about the people that came and their journey from Babylon, which at the time was, had been, you know, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and the people of God started to make their way back to Jerusalem. Uh, now, some captives, after the exile was over, decided not to return at all. They had become comfortable and complacent in their new surroundings, and they weren't going back to Jerusalem. But for the ones that did go back to Jerusalem, um, it, there, was not, there wasn't this groundswell. And when they got back to Jerusalem, they, one of the things they wanted to do, you remember a few weeks back we talked about, um, actually it was when we cast our vision for 2022, we talked about in the book of Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Well, another thing that they wanted to rebuild was God's house, the temple. And that project had started... Uh, but come to a stop. Um, it had been almost 20 years since the exile had returned, and there were limited resources and manpower, and apathy had started to affect the community. They had laid the foundation, the book of Ezra, for the temple. They had started to frame some of the walls, but the process slowed down. There was resistance, there was, there was limited resources, there was low morale, and it came to a standstill. And by the time we get to the book of Haggai, where we're at this morning, the message of Haggai is to a people standing at the boundary between disillusionment on one hand and commitment on the other. And they were asking themselves, do we abandon this project? Is it a lost cause? Or do we commit ourselves to the work God has given us like never before? And that is the message of Haggai. And this is what he has to say. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled or roofed houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. I want to unpack that this morning by looking at the symptom or the symptoms that they were experiencing, the sin they were committing, and then finally provide the solution. The symptom, the sin, and the solution. Number one, let's look at the symptom. The symptom was apathy. They said, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. For those that don't know, the temple was the center of religious and political life, and Solomon's temple was a grand spectacle. Some of you know the story. God put it in David's heart to build God a house instead of a mobile tent. We call that the tabernacle. You remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt? They were given the instructions to build the tabernacle, which was an elaborate tent that was able to move. But when they finally settled in Jerusalem, Hebron was the capital for eight years, and Jerusalem, you know, when David moved to Jerusalem, and David had it in his heart to build the temple, he didn't get to do it, but Solomon did. And when Solomon finally built the temple, it was grand. You can read about it. I mean, it was magnificent. It was grand. But that temple had been destroyed some 70 years earlier by the Babylonians. And the prospect of rebuilding the temple for the exiles who had returned some 70 years later was daunting. It was a daunting task, an overwhelming project. And it had got to the point that it was so overwhelming that it ceased to weigh heavy on their hearts. It ceased to weigh as heavy as it should. And you know, when something is overwhelming or something is um, daunting, what can happen is you abandon the whole, you abandon it altogether. You just abandon the project altogether. And this is what they said. They said, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And God has something to say about it. God is bothered by this statement from the people. When they said the time had not yet come, another way to read that is we don't have the time. That's another way to read that. The time hasn't come or we don't have the time to rebuild the temple. Now we don't think of our time as an idol, but it absolutely can be. It's a sacrifice to give away your time to something, isn't it? And things you give your time to say a lot about how important you think that thing is. And the things you refuse to give your time to also say a lot about how unimportant that thing is. Just think about your own lives, the things that you give and we give our time to. And they couldn't make the time. There was a lack of interest. There was a lack of enthusiasm. There was a lack of concern for God's house. They wanted the house of God to be rebuilt. They just didn't want to be the ones to do it, right? And we can relate to that. We want to partake of something that someone else has built where we don't have to do the work. We just get to enjoy it. They wanted someone else to do the work. And there was apathy. They were apathetic. 
And I got to tell you, there's a lot of apathy in the church right now. And I'm not talking necessarily about Highlands Church only. I'm talking like at large. There's a lot of apathy in the church right now. And where is all this apathy coming from? Well, the last two years has done a lot to destroy our routines. And most people have had very few commitments to worry about over the last couple of years. And you'd probably know this for yourself, especially those of you who have active schedules and, and are working, a lot, a lot of things on your calendar were, have been cleared out over the past couple of years. And even your involvement in the things that you have to give attention to, you've been able to do so, or had to do so, because of social distancing and all these different things, from a distance. And, you've, and it's been weird, it's been sort of, you know, kind of discombobulating for a lot of people. But it's destroyed our our sense of routine. And for some people, that has, well, let me just say it like this. Um, it, in some ways, there was nothing we could do about it. The pandemic created a situation where we had to social distance and events where we came together and the sort of normal things we did, we had to back away from, we all did. Um, and there was, there was nothing you could do about it. But in the process of that, we're all sinners and so, you could, we, I think many of us settled into a routine where backing away from a lot of, of our regular commitments actually became a new routine. It sort of became the way the world is right now. Like it's, it's like the new way of the world. Whatever commitments we had before, well, we've backed away from those commitments and the truth is a lot of us don't want to re-engage those commitments. And I'm not just talking about the church, I'm talking about other areas of our life. And, and you know, I just wanna say this like, there's a sense in which that feels good. It feels good that I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to be involved in this anymore. I don't have to give attention to this anymore. My time is free now. And I just wanna say that like, the tediousness and the hard work and duty of the attention we give to our lives is where God is glorified in us. The attention we give to our families, the hard work of, of our, our job and even involvement in church, all of these things which require our time and energy and commitment glorify God. And so we're in a place right now where we stand at the boundary also between sort of disillusionment about the church and commitment. And we're, we're sort of at this boundary marker deciding, wondering, determining, not sure if we want to remain in our disillusionment because of what's happened over the past couple of years or recommit ourselves to the work God has called us to do. So that's the, that's the symptom, okay? There's apathy. The second thing is that I want us to look at is the sin. The sin that the people in Israel were experiencing, were committing, was misplaced priorities. This is what Haggai addresses in the text. God says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The people were saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And God said, really? Because you've apparently found time for everything else. Another, going back to the point I just made, we'll find time for the things that we want to do, right? And God is telling, God told the people, you know, uh, you have found time to rebuild your own homes. Because when the children of Israel, when the exiles went back to Jerusalem, they had homes that needed to be rebuilt as well. Or they were so frustrated or 
overwhelmed with the project of the temple that they said, I'm just going to do me. I'm just going to focus on me. Take care of my personal priorities, my agenda, my personal goals, you know, and I just, someone else can deal with that. I'm going to focus on me. Their energy and their efforts were focused on themselves, their personal projects, their personal goals, their personal accomplishments, instead of where it was needed the most. And look at what God says in verse 9. My house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. My house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. I gotta tell you, when, <laughs> when I knew, you know, when we planned to have this congregational meeting, I said, we're in a series called Hard Sayings of the Bible, and I didn't have an agenda of what to preach. I just started searching the word of God. And when I read this statement, my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with us, it resonated so deeply with me because in many ways it feels like the ministry is in ruins. Uh, the church at large feels like it's in, it's in ruins. Um, if you know what's happening across the country, um, I mean, I've had conversation after conversation after conversation. I just had a conversation this week. One of the larger churches in the city, uh, a woman said, you know, she told me she just started going back to church and she said people, she helped start the church. She was there 30 years ago when the church started. She said she just started going back. She says some of her friends that have been at the church 30 years aren't coming back. She said they just didn't come back to church. She says, and they're not going anywhere. So we're, we're not talking about sort of fly-by-night followers of Jesus. We're talking about people who have been Christians for decades. You know, lifelong believers who are just saying, yeah, I just, I'm just settling into this new, this new situation. I'm not going back to church. And we may think, really, like, like, like is, that, is that the determining factor of the idea that, like, the ministry lies? And when I say, when it says here, my house, you know I'm not talking about this building, Right? This is a beautiful building. This, house, this building is not lying in ruins. It's gorgeous. Right? But this is just a building. And the house, right, the dwelling place of God is us, the body of Christ. Right? Jesus tells the Pharisees, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll build it up. Right? And they didn't understand he was talking about his body. And then later on in the Pauline epistles, that gets expanded to the people of God. We are the body of Christ. We're the dwelling place of God. We're the temple. We're the house of God. And God says, my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. He said, you're busy with your own agenda and my agenda is an afterthought. This house lies in ruins. The ministry is neglected. My kingdom purposes are ignored while each of you busies himself. And notice what he tells them next. He says, consider your ways. This is this is quite a gentle reproof, isn't it? He doesn't say, therefore, with fire and brimstone out of heaven, I will consume you. <laughs> he says, consider your ways, you know. Just think about your actions. Examine your heart, right? You've sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. What is he saying? He's saying that until you put my 
purposes first, all of the other things you busy yourself about will not yield the results you want. You've sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You, you drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And the wages you earn go into a bag with a hole in the bottom. He says, this is my judgment. Until you put my agenda first, nothing will really work for you, no matter how much energy you give it. This is God's message to the, the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem because this is how much he cared about his work about his kingdom purposes. In other words, God is saying like, you're gonna, he tells them, you're gonna spin your wheels and none of your projects will be successful. You put my agenda first and I'll put your agenda first. You care about my agenda and I'll care about your agenda, but until that day, don't expect to have success. That's what he's telling the inhabitants in Jerusalem, the Jews. The things that matter most to you will remain out of reach and unattainable until you put my agenda first. And that's a hard word. That is a hard saying of the Bible. It demonstrates that God wants to be first in our lives in every area. God wants us to put him first even above our own priorities. Again, what's the sin? Misplaced priorities. The priorities of the people were upside down. God's, God's agenda should have been on the top priority, but it was on the bottom. It was an afterthought. It was something that if they had time for it, they would do it. They weren't going to sacrifice any time for it. If an opening, something opened up in their schedule, well, they'd make time for it. But if not, it's on the back burner. And God has something to say about that. And God has something to say to each one of us when we do that too. Whenever we relegate the things of God to the back burner, you know, this is the message from God. Make my agenda your first priority, and I'll make your agenda mine. He says next in verses 9 and 10, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. They were experiencing a famine at the time. The harvests weren't yielding the crops they wanted. It hadn't rained. You know, the Middle East, if you don't have rain, uh, you know, your crops are toast. They're done. And God sent the rain, right? And God says that I, the next verse, verse 11, I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on the ground that brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. I did it. I withheld the drought. I, I mean, I withheld the, the rain. I have called for a drought. God himself did this. God was the foil to their labors, we don't think of God that way because we know that God is a God of grace, but in God's love for us, he gives us sometimes tough love, right? Like a good parent. A good parent isn't, isn't completely passive, right? Just smiling and blessing all, everything their children, children do with absolute approval. A good parent demonstrates disapproval when their children do the bad thing, the wrong things, Right? Because you love your children, you don't give them approval for everything they do, because sometimes your children do terrible things. They do harmful things, scary things, bad things, dangerous things. And they need your disapproval when they behave badly. They don't need absolute and utter approval across the board. And God, in his love for us, who does he chasten? Who does he chastise? Who does he rebuke? Well, he rebukes his children. 
He reproves us. He corrects us because he loves us. You know, we misunderstand the wrath of God. I think the world misunderstands the wrath of God. John Stott says that God is wrathful because he loves human beings. The anger in God is a result of his love. If God, if God wasn't wrathful, he'd be completely indifferent, ice cold to the things we do. So, you know, we always, we, we think wrath is the result of God's hatred. It's not. It's actually the result of God's love. God reproves us, and sometimes he foils our labors to get our attention, to get our focus on him, and to reorient our priorities. He says, I kept you from succeeding. Now consider your ways. Now, why am I talking like this? Um, we, we, have, we have good people in this church, giving people, people who love the Lord, faithful people. And so I don't want to somehow cast a pall over the people here who have showed up this morning like, and, and beat up on anyone, right? Because we have good people here, faithful people. The ministries that exist here are a result of people sacrificing their time and serving. And at the same time, there is a general sense of disillusionment that has fallen on the church. A general sense of apathy, I think, that has fallen on the church. And I see it uh, here and I see it abroad and I hear stories from other pastors and um, we've got to come out of this. We've got to come out of this place of apathy uh, we've got to shake loose this, um, this new sort of paradigm where, um, you know, we're not sure we want to rebuild God's house like the people in Jerusalem. Um, you've heard of the rise of the, the nuns. Have you heard that before? People who check religious affiliation on an application or something and they put the word nun. Have you heard of that? You know, the rise of the nuns. They're called the nuns. I mean, well, and pastors talk about this all the time. The rise of the nuns. Okay, it's, it's been a thing for about 10 years. Well, there's a new, a new thing now as a result of COVID. It's called the rise of the duns. They're people who are done with church. And they're just, they're just tired of it. They're just tired of church. They're tired of being a part of what body life is. The involvement, the participation, the attendance. They're just sort of tired of it. And one article I read just this week said, these are not people who are abandoning their faith, but they're abandoning the church. And whenever I read that kind of stuff as a pastor, I just go, phooey, hogwash. And I'm going to tell you why. The faith that Jesus Christ calls us to is a life in participation in this worshiping community. In other words, what you're called to when you are called to faith in Jesus is a worshiping community. That's what you're called to. Now, does that mean what we do outside of the church doesn't matter? No, absolutely. Everything we do in life matters. But primarily what we're called to is to be, participate in a worshiping community together. And so the idea that you can walk away from the church and not walk away from your faith you know, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not God and I can't judge people's hearts, but it don't sound right to me. 
And I think Cyprian in the fourth century had it right when he said you can't have God as father without the church as mother. We stand this morning at a boundary. I mean, look around, look at the pews. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a largely empty building. We stand at a boundary this morning between disillusionment on one hand and commitment on the other. As I mentioned, part of the problem was that they had done some work on the temple. They had laid the foundation in the walls, but certain factors frustrated the process. In other words, those, there were real factors frustrating their rebuilding process. It wasn't just that they just walked away one day in the middle of it all and said, I'm done. There were circumstances that frustrated the process. <clears throat> Excuse me. Allergies, not COVID, okay? <laughs> their biggest obstacle They had limited resources, limited manpower, but their biggest obstacle may have been an acute case, you ready for it? An acute case of comparisonitis. I made that word up, okay? Comparisonitis. There were two things going on. They'd left Babylon and Persia and had seen the grand temples of Babylon. And boy, they were grand. You've probably heard of like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And I mean, it was a big deal. It was like, you know, one of the the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the pagans had way more money. They just did. They were bigger. They were better funded. They had more resources. And their temples were amazing. And if you were a Jew worshiping Yahweh in Israel, you were thinking to yourself, whose God is greater? Right? Right? And the other comparisonitis that they were struggling with was remembering Solomon's temple, the history, right? And for many of them, they'd never seen Solomon's temple because it was 70 years later, but they'd seen drawings and they'd heard the stories and they'd envisioned in their mind the grandeur of Solomon's temple and now here they were with a box. And that's what, in Ezra's day, the, the foundation and the walls they laid, it was just like a little box, just the, the temple, the temple they're rebuilding is just a little box. And they, they'd known about, you know, the Greeks and the Persians and the Babylonians and, you know, the Egyptians and their grand, you know, their grand, you know, the pyramids were up by this time, you know, and they're suffering from comparisonitis. They kind of they don't want to rebuild the temple. What's the point? I mean, look, we're, we're outflanked and outmaneuvered and outdone by everyone else. And so they sort of abandon the project, and, but God's not okay with it. God calls them out for it. And instead, like why did God call them out? Because when they abandon the project, they say, we're just gonna focus on ourselves. I'm just gonna do me. I'm focus on my own life. They're working to rebuild their homes, to beautify their homes, to perfect their homes, to perfect their lives. It seemed like a far more scalable plan, right? And we fall into that trap too. How can I change the world for the kingdom of God? How can, look at I mean, this, this, this tide of wickedness in our culture, sort of like a tidal wave flowing over us and you resign yourself just, I'm just gonna focus on my little, you know, I, and you withdraw. The little things in my control, I can control and make pretty and, and beautify and perfect. Those are the things I'm gonna focus on. That's not bad in and of itself. But it's bad when it causes us to abandon God's calling and purpose on our lives. 
They abandoned the project, they busied themselves with their own projects. But God said your priorities are upside down. So what's the solution? Let me get to the solution, okay? There is a solution. <laughs> I'm prone to just focus on the problem and say, have a nice day and I go home, right? God is far better than I am with this. And the prophets are better than I am with this because, you know, when people talk about like the angry God of the Old Testament and like the meanie God of the prophets, they're not reading the prophets. All of the judgment in, in the prophets, if you read all the prophets, they always end with hope. God is gracious that way, right? You know, he, he, he identifies our sin. He calls us out for our covenant unfaithfulness. He reproves us, rebukes us, and then God gives hope and says, but you're still my people and I will be with you and I have not abandoned you. And I will be with you when you return to this task. And look what God says with the solution here. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I, may, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God says, do what you have to do that the rebuilding can begin. Go up to the mountain. Go get the resources, get the wood, build the house. Why? So that I can take pleasure in it. What is God telling us to do? What's, the, what's our wood right, like, that we're going to bring down from the mountain? It's our gifts. It's our talents. That's our wood. So that the ministry is everything it should be. And God says, and I'll take pleasure in it. I'll take pleasure in you. I'll take pleasure in your lives. When you do this, I'll take pleasure in your service. God didn't have pleasure in what they were doing because they were neglecting the thing that he wanted them to do. Then Haggai spoke, verse 13, to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Four times in the book of Haggai, God repeats this, I'm with you. And we could add the word, I'm still with you. And this is God's message to us. God says, yeah, our world has been ravaged by a pandemic for the last two years, and it has completely disoriented our lives and our churches and ministries and our families and our routines. But God says, I'm still with you. And I want to say to you, Highlands Church, God is still with us. God is still with us. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord. House of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And God gives this promise, okay? It's up to you to believe it. Look at this next promise, verse nine. Read it before I read it. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will grant well-being or peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This community needs rebuilding. This is a call to action, okay? Our community, as the body of Christ, needs rebuilding, and each of us corporately, you know, each of us individually and corporately together have to take responsibility for where we are. 
as I mentioned a moment ago, the people who just want to be done with the church, a lot of it is just the sort of rigmarole of it, you know? If you've ever gone on vacation, you know, if you had a nice long vacation, it was hard to go back to work. (laughs) And, you know, we've kind of been on vacation from the routine, and it feels hard for some of us to get back to it. But God says, consider your ways. The ministry can't be all God intends it to be with minimal involvement, enthusiasm, participation, and attendance. And I want to tell you something. I, I, want, I just want to encourage you. You probably don't think, you, whatever church you go to, your attendance isn't for the pastor. And in some ways, it's not even for God. It's for the person next to you. Because when they see you sitting next to them on the pew or in front of them and behind them, you know what they think? I'm not alone. There are people in this fight with me because life is hard. And the world can be dark and cold. And people are encouraged by your presence. It's not, you know, it's not your, your relationship with God rises and falls based on how many Sundays a month you're in church. But, but I think there are a lot of us who just don't think much about it. Uh, you know, if our schedule is open, we're in church. And I just want to say, like, people need to be encouraged to see you. Your presence and your face encourages the person sitting next to you to know they're not alone, that there's someone else fighting this fight with me. I'm on a team. I'm a part of a body. I'm a part of a group, a great cloud of witnesses, as Scripture says. And I just don't think we think about that much. We just, we just don't think about that much. We plan our lives. We plan our schedules. And, you know, we just we do our thing. And God says, consider your ways. If you're one of those people feeling discouraged, apathetic, disconnected, now some of you aren't. Some of you are just, you're feeling fine. <laughs> I don't assume that everyone feels exactly the same way, but I assume, I, I, I would guess that, that some of us, many of us have felt this tension to give up, the pressure to give up, the pressure to be done, the pressure to walk away, the pressure to, well, the temptation to stay in this new state of affairs, this sort of new status quo, And maybe you're feeling that apathy, that disconnectedness. Maybe your priorities are misplaced. God is telling us, and God is telling you, and you need to know that God is, his message to you this morning is, I'm still with you. I'm still with you as a people. I haven't abandoned you. God hasn't abandoned us. God hasn't abandoned the church at large. And he hasn't abandoned this little local church either. God is with us. And Whatever happens from this day forward, that ought to be in our hearts. That God says, I'm still with you. And the work that I've given you still needs to go forward. And when you go forward in that work, I'll be with you. Let's pray. Father, you uh, speak to us in your word. Thank you for the book of Haggai, this, this timeless message which was for the Jews um, in the sixth century BC, but it's for us also today. It was for people thousands of miles away, away in the ancient Near East, and it is also for people today in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for the timeless application of this truth. And thank you, O oh God, that when you reprove and correct us, you always give us hope. Help us, O oh God, to recognize that what we're doing, we're serving a bigger purpose. 
we're serving a great big God, and that the things we are doing have eternal significance, and that you call every generation of your people out from the darkness of selfishness, self-absorption, self-centeredness, and misplaced priorities, oh God. And you call us to follow you with our whole heart, to serve you with our whole heart, to put your agenda first above ours, recognizing that when we seek first the kingdom and all of its righteousness, then all of those other things you'll give to us, and you do. Father, we thank you now for these promises, this hope, this encouragement, in Christ's name, amen.